Oh, if I had enough of helping people. <laughs> well, for me, <laughs> forget helping people. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Twenty twenty two, humanized family. How you guys doing? Welcome back. We feel so blessed to be um, here today. We're gonna debrief the episode we did with Ms. Vanny, um, and hopefully you enjoy it. It was amazing. And um, Emily, could you just shape that um, for us as we as we get into just a little recap? A yeah. recap for us. Yes. So last week we spoke with. Vani Tangela, and she is a race equity specialist at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So she has a ton of experience, particularly with strategic initiatives focused on equity and inclusion. And she led us through this amazing experience of looking at, you know, how do we stay embodied in conversations about race and racialized experiences while the, that whole system, the system of, you know, people showing up for that um, is informed by a lot of trauma. So we were talking about trauma. We're talking about unpacking, being othered, metabolizing trauma, the brain. It was really, I mean, for me, it felt in my own personal journey, that's the center of my work. I have a couple master's degrees and topics related to intercultural communication and critical theory, but all of that, like for me, it all boils down to just working with the body experience of, of staying present when my brain feels that like defensive check coming in and then tries to pull back. So I loved that she kind of brought up all of those amazing topics. And I, Courtney, I was wondering if we could kind of start today looking at some of these topics through the frame of what's going on here. So I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Last week, we had devastating fires, um, took down about a thousand houses. The stories coming out of it are just heartbreaking. I mean, people literally running for their lives, couldn't open their garages because the power was out. And, you know, how do they get their car to their garage and animals in crates at home and people at work who couldn't get to those animals. And they're just, if you look at those neighborhoods, they're just gone, just absolutely gone. And so feeling a little heavy, you know, coming into this podcast today, I think you and I are both feeling pretty heavy for different reasons, but yeah. Um, one thing that's kind of on my mind, and she brought it up too, um, I'm going to play this clip where she was talking about the importance of accessing social capital. Here's the clip. When we had first moved to the state, right, we all had, or at least my parents and I had this like rose colored lens. And, you know, this was in 1997. And so there was this big, big, like hype over America and United States. And, and I, I think it still exists to some degree globally, but I think particularly at that time in the nineties, it was so, so present of like, 
if you're able to immigrate, you're able to give your kids all this opportunity, all this access, all this, 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 right? This great American dream. And it was so, so omnipresent everywhere. And through social capital and because my dad's sister had immigrated in the 80s and because of her her connections to her husband and all of these things, really this access to social capital allowed us to have that opportunity, right? And I say that because a lot of times people think you could just, you know, move here or all, and it's, it's just really arduous. Anyways, and so I think moving to the States, even at a young age, it became really obvious to me that, oh, it, it isn't this great land that we keep talking about or hearing about. And I think in, in high school, I kind of really had this realization of like, wow, although this is the claim we make all the time, there is a lot of inequities even within the states and across different populations of people and depending on the color of your skin. So there are so many families that are rallying to support each other. The community is here is so active and alive. The donations, people dropping off things. Like right now, everyone's just overwhelmed with like, how do we sort through all these donations? How do we make spreadsheets to get people what they need? But I think what's really top of mind for a lot of folks is like, I'm supporting the people that I know who lost houses or can't go back to their houses. What about the people who don't have that social capital? Like social capital is really front and center right now in terms of recovery from a disaster. And it's something that I, you know, have talked to you about before, Courtney, as as something that feels like really strong. When I think of my upbringing and my Ivy League education, that has offered me so much social capital. The people that I know am I able to tap for support are like editors at the Atlantic, you know, like people that are just like way, you know, news anchors and people that are just really have been given a lot of opportunities. So this idea of social capital when it comes to coming to the States and creating something new, but also social capital connections with people with a lot of capital when it comes to recovering from natural disasters, because that's going to become more and more common. And it's just another layer of privilege that I'm just tuning into as my community is trying to recover from this natural disaster. See, you you touched on a lot of things right there. You know, I know um, I was just talking for a while. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it, it was, it was brilliant. Um, it kind of makes me think back on the conversation that we were having with um, the Reverend about climate change. Reverend Yearwood, season two. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about um, how ghettos were made, um, how individuals in those situations are forgotten about, you know? And so when you already live in a marginalized world, when you already come into, when you already live in existence that you are othered or less than, your importance is not as seen or is not as vocal when the disaster occurs because your life was never really that important to begin with. And that's just the reality. Sometimes, and this has affected me negatively too, that I view everyone as family because people say, take care of your family and that's it. Your mother, your father, your sister, people that have the same DNA as you is your family. My perspective and worldview is so different. You know, if I even see a person on the street, that has to be my family because they're mankind. They're, they're humans. If we, if we start to view the world as, you know, this is all of us in this together versus this is me, this is you, you take care of you, you take care of me, you don't deserve this. 
and start thinking about why do I deserve to be given so many donations when a fire has come that affected my family? Why do I deserve that? Everybody can make an excuse of, of that, why they deserve it. But it's easy to say that, Emily, you don't deserve it because I don't know you. Yeah, I don't, like, I feel like um, one thing that is strangely beautiful is being in a community after a disaster. Like, it was the same thing after the floods here in, in 2013 when so much was wiped out. There is such an, an outpouring of support, and it actually feels like everyone is family. And it's kind of like a brief window of time where actually people's hearts are opened. I think there's something about going through collective trauma that actually brings people together. And what it does is it just puts highlights on like, who do I not have connections to? How do I make a connection to them? How do we, it's kind of like this myth of access is is put on blast. Like everyone has equal access to everything. But we know in terms of if we were to watch like the funneling of resources right now that most of us just top of mind are the people that we know. Like, let me help you. Let, let me help someone. Like, okay, this is a person who like literally goes to my school. So I'm going to help them. So it just really puts a, a highlight on like, there are communities within my community that I don't have access to because I am not circulating in their world constantly, and it, it's putting divisions top of mind. Exactly. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Every disaster that's ever happened, when you talk about World Trade Center, you're talking about Afghanistan, you're talking about um, fires, you're talking about floods, It always every, the country always rallies. But then white supremacy said, oh, y'all can, y'all, we can't have that. Everybody can't be the same. Everybody can't get the same access. We kind of like settle back into the patterns. Yeah, yeah, relax, relax, you know? And then individuals who control the flow of monies, who control this says, you know what? I'm doing this for your good. I can't open up a budget and give this much money to this much people because then we won't have money. Then you won't know what to do with it. And so this is how the cycle of white supremacy always makes make sure that it protects itself. And so if if you were a person, white or black, because white supremacy affects everyone and it's not about the color, it's about the, the impression and what it does, the damage that it, the oppression and the damage that it does. If you if I only see this t- person all the time, I've never reached out, I've never gotten to know, I'm only gonna help that community. Yeah, when you have Thanksgiving and Christmas time, it's marketed as a time where we give back to those less fortunate than us and this and that until like a natural disaster comes and then it's like, okay, you got to open up, but then you're doing too much. The flood is going to be over. The trauma of the flood, people can start to forget just like people forgot about COVID. They're going to forget about COVID soon and say, oh, you know what? Oh, I've had enough of helping people. well for me (laughs) forget helping people for me what comes up and I don't know if this is just my own thing but like so I feel like the the workaround for me of like how do I support you know communities that I don't have direct contact with who may be more vulnerable maybe they didn't have insurance you know for their house or their renting and then I'm like okay I need to go through the community-based organizations and then I have all this like mistrust of like, are people going to be like 
taking huge chunks of the money that I, you know, how do I give directly to them? And the, the mistrust comes up for me and then it's a little bit paralyzing. And I think that this is, I mean, I, yeah, I guess I would just say like in this, this year we had the massive tornadoes in central U S we have the fires, we have the fires in California, as a country, as we go into um, basically climate-related disaster recovery mode, which is more and more common, we're going to be doing it more and more frequently, how do we create recovery that's more equitable? Like, how do we recreate systems where people know how to support their community in a a quick way, in a non-corrupt way? I'm so so fearful of corruption because it's everywhere. Oh, it's everywhere. Um Quickly, I think it's, you have to be more proactive. Before it happens. Before it happens. That's the first solve for that problem. When you think about, when you think about New Orleans, the levees, you know, that's proactive activism. That could have not been as catastrophic if it was dealt with in the beginning. But it, it, it affected who it affected, so it wasn't as urgent. Flint, Michigan. If they had updated the pipes and the, the the water system, that would have been such a catastrophic thing. Again, these communities that are marginalized, if they're proactively worked upon and equitably served, then the catastrophes that follow wouldn't be as such. If the prevention is there, if we can equitably make sure that all the neighborhoods are protected, all the neighborhoods are served, then, I mean, we are just going to continue to have these climate-related disasters then. Because, I mean, even if you think about, like, where where people are located, like, I grew up in a neighborhood that was on a hill. Like, even just being on a hill is safer from flooding, from all these places. You know, like, the, the people, where people have settled, there's typically, you know, they're more secure neighborhoods if you have more money and that's where you're going to be. And then that's going to be highlighted again. So yeah, I mean, it is going back to Reverend Yearwood's episode in season two and just thinking like we need to (laughs) understand how climate, climate change and climate justice are disproportionately affecting marginalized populations and, and start there. When we talk about dismantling all of these systems, you could take every system and do proactive work, and that would dismantle a broken system. If you if you educated individuals the same, mass incarceration would decline. If you give everyone access to quality, consistent health care, then the healthcare system wouldn't be overrun and overburdened. <laughs> Right. And uh, this this brings up something else that came up. We were talking about health inequities with Vanny. I don't know if this is just like everyone is understanding this or if this was just an aha for me recently. <laughs> so feeling a little um, embarrassed. I don't know. But in terms <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of her work is focused on health inequities and we kind of brushed upon COVID a bit and and we're talking about trauma and the effect of trauma on the body. And she, let me play a clip of when she was talking about metabolizing being othered in a healthy way. And without having that language to really unpack like what was happening, right, of being othered 
I still carry that with me and I still am unpacking that, right? Of like, what does it mean to be in spaces where you belong or when you're constantly othered, when you're not part of the dominant culture? We really have to think about our own individual trauma as well as some of the collective trauma pieces because we all come with our own personal experiences and oftentimes they're painful. And so if we're not able to really do that as we're going through it, it's all within us, right? It's within our bodies. It's it's all over. And if we're not metabolizing that in kind of healthy ways, or not even healthy, just if we're not metabolizing it, then it stays with you and you're carrying this everywhere you go. And that can be really just, you know, it's, it's this thing that's permanently with you. All right. So there she's talking about you know, needing to metabolize trauma. We know that trauma stays in our bodies. We know that it is, you know, our mind can do whatever it wants, but trauma needs to be metabolized and is a privilege to be able to to sit down and metabolize it and to have the support to do that. That is something that not everyone is able to do. It's not something that everyone's going to be able to do after this fire. And that that trauma will eat at our bodies, right? And so we see this greater vulnerability to hypertension, to underlying conditions in the BIPOC community, particularly like black and brown bodies. Then that puts this extra layer of risk for complications from COVID. And I I guess I didn't really like when I was seeing how COVID was disproportionately affecting black and brown communities really like put together. I was like, oh, right. All that, that like unmetabolized trauma in the system is creating a greater vulnerability to diseases like COVID, therefore creating a disproportionate impact of that disease. Is that? That's a hundred percent true. See, let's take Colorado here for a second and just say that patient A, patient B, patient A is, gets COVID less, patient B gets COVID more. The reason that patient B would is not because they're black or brown. It's because the communities that the black and brown individuals are in cause them to have a, a lessened immune system. Right, right. Right? Trauma and stress decreases your immunity um, if it's sustained stress and trauma. And so when COVID encounter it is a perfect breeding ground for that. Versus someone who is, so if, if a black person was eating right, doing well, sleeping well, they would get COVID and, and, and it'll just be like, oh, okay. Because we encounter, yeah, not even the cold or just like anything, you know, because we encounter viruses all day and we don't even know. We don't even know. And, and so the COVID wouldn't have been as ravenous as it was if equity was at the top of priorities in the U.S., if equity was everything and everyone would, like, it would have been individuals who were elderly, individuals who were immunocompromised because of steroids, missed some pregnant mothers. It would have been a different narrative around COVID versus, oh, it's a black and brown disease. But because trauma is, is very prevalent to black and brown communities, that's why it looks as though it's a black and brown disease, if that's making sense. And so, yes, you're right, right. Right. I don't know why I was, so you obviously have way more <laughs> exposure to public health. And I, I don't know why I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, maybe some of these, these inequities are related to, you know, access to great doctors, access to expensive prescription drugs. Like that was kind of what I was thinking of inequities, not so much 
the stress and trauma impact on the body. That's why I'm like, okay, maybe everyone is always thinking like this because it's so obvious now that I like put that together. But um, no, no, no. But access to doctors causes stress too. All of these things cause stress, but stress is the main underlying issue as to why I am more susceptible. And I'm not even because I'm not in Atlanta. I'm not as stressed. I'm not having to 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 think about or make other things priority as I do while I'm here in Colorado. So my stress level is not that high. So my immunity may not be that low. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Your stress level is still. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. But yeah. I'm just teasing you. But <laughs> you know, you're um, right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, maybe you could, can you speak to that a little bit? Just like from your personal experience, if you're willing of like, how do you, how maybe think about in Atlanta and how did you support yourself metabolizing or see the impact of not metabolizing all of these stressors? I did not. It's only now that I've started to even recognize or even see the importance of metabolizing and 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 speaking on and getting the, the mental um, uh, health work that I need to, to work through that trauma and that pain of my early life. Before that, it's, it's nothing to work out. It is what it is. That's what we live with. That's what, that's what has to happen. And so we learn to live with that. That acceptance, yeah. I mean, it's a big strategy, right? It's just like, these are the conditions. This is what life is. It's survival. And and um, and it serves you well, you know, while you're in it. Um, but it's very deleterious to relationships, to quality of life, to, to job performance, to to just how you view every everything. And so when you're in it, you you learn to enjoy it, if that makes sense. It does, because you're, I mean, like, it's amazing wiring that we have, right? Of like, make the best of it. Like, this is it. There's almost like a pride, right? Of like, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. got this. Or you said pride, just like when we say, hey, I went to jail for 30 years. I made it out, man. And you get the congratulations in the community. We had to do that versus someone who goes to college and brings back home an MBA, or 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 JD, they're looked. Yeah, all right, cool. But my man over here just came back from jail, because not too many people are getting an MBA in the community. But a lot of people are going to jail and, and coming back home. And if so, if, if they come back home, that's more of something to celebrate. It's almost like social capital to a degree of like you made it through. Yes, yes. And so like that's what it is. And so it's it's on me now to change that narrative. Like, if you go to jail, 100%, thank God you made it home, brother, sister, little child for going to juvenile coming home. Thank God you weren't killed. Thank God that you, did, you didn't get any any disease and in, in jail. Thank God that you kept your, your mental sanity. Thank God, thank God, thank God. However, if you go to school and you come back home in our community, you're giving back, you should be the mayor. We need, to, we need to celebrate you, give you love, prop you up, give you assistance, you know? And, and so I'm not taking away anything for anyone who had the harsh reality of incarceration that goes back into the community. What I am saying is we also need to give that same love to individuals that go to college, to go to a higher education, 
to go that, that create businesses who came from that community. Do you see that narrative shifting? Do you see that celebration kind of happening more or? Too slow, too slow. It's, it's just too slow. Couldn't be fast enough. Couldn't be fast enough. Exactly. And so, yeah, you were talking about um, the myth of access because it's like we give you healthcare, but we only give you healthcare sometimes. And the healthcare that you get is is not what you actually need. It's what we're going to give you. Right. And you should be grateful for that. And you should be grateful. So that <laughs> that's a, that sometimes it's, it's easy to say, you know what? I don't want anything. That's why individuals who say, yeah, you got this community center that that gives us these medications, but it's over there. Right now, I have to go to work. I have to do this. Like There are so many barriers to get what people feel as though they're helping out a community that is not even worth it. You know, it's almost a waste. And so just just thinking through all of those inequities is what I think that that Ed Vanny artistfully just brought to, and highlighted during this episode. Vani. 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 <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so a lot of the the things that Vani was talking about was just staying embodied in these conversations. And I just want to be honest with like listening to you talk about uh, jail and people coming back from jail. I'm just really struck by (laughs) our differences in this moment, like the different worlds that we've come from. I don't know anyone who's been in jail. I, I don't know a single person. And I come from, you know, when it comes from education, I come from the Northeast, which is like the home of intellectual snobbery. You know, like my whole life starting in second grade, it's like, what college can you get into? Like, that's the focus. Um, I'm just really grateful to be in this collaboration with you and able to kind of share our worlds and come to more nuanced understanding of the world that we live in through hearing your perspectives and through vocalizing my perspectives and my understandings and because they're just so dramatically different. And it's amazing that we we get the opportunity to connect across such great differences. Yeah. And I also want you to not to beat yourself up because you couldn't pick and choose to be a white woman from Northeast. You were born. There's no way you could have checked the box and said, hey, you know what? I want to be a black woman from Harlem, from the hood, during the crack era so I can have that lived experience. I couldn't have picked to be a white guy from the Northeast who went to Harvard, who came, like, because if we could pick and choose, who the hell would pick and choose to be to grow up poor? No one would, you know? However, we 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 grew up how we grew up. It gave us the experience and perspective. And we're here today to hope to shape a narrative and, and and start a conversation that would spark change so that individuals who are born in both instances can have a chance to dismantling white supremacy. You know, and that that's the mission because individuals that are born in the Northeast are given this narrative that we're not affected by white supremacy, whether you're white or black. Because if you're in the Northeast and you're living and you're thriving and you as a black guy, you're going to these schools, you're affected by white supremacy just as much as if you're a white person going to these schools. It just looks different and it just and and the effect is just different, you know? And so uh, I just want to let you know, like, I enjoy the differences of people. 
Yeah, I do too. I do too. And it, but is it's just really life changing. Like I was just looking at my high school. You know, they send out I don't know a quarterly like update. Here's some articles. Here's some whatever kind of magazine. And it had um, one of my teachers highlighted from high school. And I looked at it and I was like, God, he's black. Like I had no consciousness at that point of how his experience at my high school was probably very different, (laughs) you know? And like, I just, I'm, I'm shocked at the lack of consciousness there. And I, I do hope that I do think it's different now. I mean, certainly at my particular high school with this situation with Nicole Hannah-Jones and, you know, a lot going on there on consciousness and awareness, but I am appreciative of the opportunity to just really focus on this. Um, and I would say a little little plug here to listeners. We would love your support to keep going with Humanize. Um, if you would go to our Patreon page, we have an amazing production team to make sure that this is high quality production. Yes, and yes. we would love your support. It's Patreon backslash the Humanize podcast. We want to keep going and keep recording and keep bringing in amazing voices so that we can continue this conversation. So if you feel moved, please go ahead over to that and just give, you know, five, 10, whatever, whatever works for you. We'd really appreciate it. So we do need to wrap up. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Vani. (laughs) Vani. We got your name. We got your name. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was amazing to be able to hear from Vani, someone that I've known for a few years and haven't been able to really like sit down and, and talk to for a long amount of time. So go back and listen to her episode if you haven't yet. And we'll be back next week with something else. Spark some more thought. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much. For everything. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Peace. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.